Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Who's ready for another episode of their rabbis and they're married? I just imagine you all saying married afterwards. <laughs> hello, everyone. This is Rabbi Rachel. How are you doing? Oh, so what a pleasant voice you have. It's so nice. How is everybody doing these days? It's like such a hard question to answer. I mean, it's uh, we're recording this. I feel like we always need to give context of when we're recording these uh, about what's going on in the world. So we're recording this November 30th, 2023 at the end of November. And, you know, we just we celebrated a really lovely Thanksgiving. We had a really nice time. We went to Chicago with my family. All my siblings came home, all of their kids. So all the cousins, Hattie's generation were all together and it was fun and it was great, but it's also still a hard time in the world. And this is not the topic of our conversation today, but, you know, in the just context of when we're recording, we're um, in a, another extension day of the of the ceasefire and hostages continue to be released. And, you know, with each hostage that's released, I'm just kind of remembering and re-traumatized to how many are still there. And it's, you know, we like try and we try and just continue on and, and live and, and celebrate and live full lives. But I think it's always either in the back of our head or in the forefront of our minds, depending on what's happening in the moment. So, so how are you is a hard question to answer these days. Yeah, not easy, not easy. And you'll have heard in our previous podcast, a speaker at our synagogue, Ram al uh, one of the survivors of the Nova Music Festival. And I know that must have it's a hard conversation, I'm sure, to listen to uh, what happened. And uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of hardness we're going through right now. But thank God in our life, things are, our personal life, things are things are relatively good right now. Uh, Rabbi Rachel, can I, can I say the good news here to our podcast listeners? I don't know what news you're referring to, but go for it. Bishat Tova. I don't think we've told them. Oh, I think we may have. Have we told you guys? <laughs> you can't tell us, so we don't know. Rabbi Rachel's pregnant. It's going to be great. And relevant to our topic today. And relevant to our topic today. So that made us think, you might understand that we have babies, we have pregnancy, we have fertility on our mind because of, of uh, Rabbi Rachel is expecting, and of course we're expecting as well, which is such a blessing. And so today we wanted to talk really about birth, the birthing process, uh, fertility, infertility in our tradition, and, and sort of the way Judaism approaches these topics and of course, we wanted to bring in a specialist, a guest speaker here with us. And we're really, 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 really excited to have Dr. Rachel Peretz here. Uh, wonderful, wonderful doctor and community. Welcome, Dr. Rachel, Dr. Peretz. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Peretz, what do you what do you specialize in? I'm an OBGYN. Ah, so that's why you're here today. <laughs> oh, very exciting. She is a wonderful OBGYN. We're just so excited to have you here. Talk a little about your own experiences and also as a Jew um, mm-hmm. coming into this, uh, a very active Jew, of uh, what that means to you and, and sort of where that intersects the holy work that you do professionally and sort of where that inter- intersects uh, with your Judaism and your, your spiritual life as well. So we're really excited to talk about that someday. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for doing this. You know, I don't often get a chance to reflect on how my, what sort of become my work life interacts with my personal life, my spiritual life. So it was a nice thing to, as I was thinking about what we'd be discussing today, it was nice to be able to reflect on that and gather that information and just center that and see my, my job in that way. 
I wonder before we really dig in, if you can give us a little bit of autobiographical information, like how did you choose this specialty? Like what draws you to this line of work? So initially I was certain, I, I, I think I've always wanted to go into medicine and that was pretty clear in my family and I've always talked about that, but OBGYN throughout college throughout med school was like the last plan on my list. In fact, <laughs> I did it as my last rotation um, oh, in med school, which you're, you're kind of supposed to put your desired rotation right in the middle, like, right? So you've had some experience, but it's not all the way at the end. So you can get your recommendations going for your residency. And I put mine all the way at the end. I just totally fell in love with it. And the lifestyle for it can be a little rough, uh, especially in New York where I was training. And I was getting a lot of pushback from some of my mentors about doing it or maybe not doing it. And I had a bit of a talk with my mother-in-law at that point, And I said that my husband's really pushing me to do OBGYN. And she looked at me really frankly and was like, yeah, because... That's what you love doing. Oh, and that was it. So it was a that was a really important moment for my life, and I'm so glad that she did because I've found different ways that it can fit into my life and different ways that it can work for me. And I love what I do. I'm happy every day I'm at work. I'm happy when I'm sleepless on days like today because I enjoy what I do. That's amazing. We can, we share something in common in that I, throughout mm -hmm. rabbinical school, never wanted to be a pulpit rabbi. I never had a pulpit internship. I like avoided all of the requirements for pulpit <laughs> work all through rabbinical school. And then through happenstance found myself here and like, couldn't be happier. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what I was meant to do. So sometimes we're not our like best judge. Of yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm curious, like what, what do you, if you can describe it, a lot of times these things we really truly love and are ineffable, we can't describe but as much as best as you can, like why, what you think, what do you think uh, connected you to OBGYN and the holy work you do? Why you love it so much? You get to see, you get to be with people at their most vulnerable moments in their life. And you get to do this emotional support and physical support of them. And the, the actual work we do is really fun. The mm -hmm. surgeries that we do are really fun. The environments that we're in are, are generally joyous, but there's also a lot of heartbreak, and the heartbreak that we see is kind of the worst heartbreak. But you get to walk with someone through that, and you get to guide them through their steps and through their life and... We literally are seeing people from their birth to all the way up to their death. And we can't do everything at every stage, but you get to see all their changes and all their big changes in their life. Wow. Amazing. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. For you personally, it has, do you think Judaism, your Judaism and your Jewish spirituality or, or traditions or what have you, has that interacted sort of with this at all for you? Yeah, I've been thinking about that since we were 
since we've been talking about doing this podcast and how does Judaism fit in there? And there's kind of that age old question for doctors or for scientists, which is how do you believe in God when you know so much about science, when you believe in science and when you understand science. And I think in my job, it feels like, how do you not believe in God when you know so much and when you realize you know so very little? I think that in pregnancy, for example, there's, there's a lot of heartbreak, but it's, it's pretty miraculous that women in general have a cycle every month, have a window that they can get pregnant every month, and that after a year, almost 80% of women will get pregnant. You could even say that three out of four pregnancies of those will, will go to a normal pregnancy. So it's the, the hard part is that one in four pregnancies can end in a loss, and that's heartbreaking. But there's also a part of you that's like, wait, all of this stuff has to happen, and only one in four times it fails. It, it, that part is pretty miraculous. Those are the parts that, that you think everything needs to meet in the right spot. Everything needs to divide. DNA needs to join, double, divide, go from cells to a human to something that you can hold and touch that starts microscopically. It's truly the miracle of life that you see. Man, I think you, you want to be a rabbi too? You just made me have faith. Thank you. Thank you for that. How can you not believe after hearing that, right? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So we want to talk about a little bit about that miracle today. Um, we want to talk about its joys. Uh, we want to talk about its hard hard times uh, about it as well. Um, and we want to hear your your personal experiences. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to note right from the beginning here as I'm also a man. And so in some ways I'm not part of this experience in the same way that that you two are. Um, so I'm going to try to make make sure that you guys are are more uh, lifted up. Your voices are lifted up here, and uh, in some ways, I am an observer of of this and and this really magical, honestly, and holy thing that that women get to experience. So I, I think the way we want to do this today, uh, we want to talk about the way Judaism talks about birth and and infertility and and all these all these things. Uh, the first place I really want to talk about it is, is start really here is something that I think inspires us all. Um, in some ways, was actually the reason for the redemption of the Jewish people from Egypt were midwives, right? Were Shifra and Pua. So we want to talk a little bit about Shifra and Pua, and specifically a wonderful midrash. Do you want to talk a little bit about Rabbi Rachel? Yeah. So this is a actually a contemporary midrash. So for those who aren't familiar, a midrash is a story from the rabbis. So it's not a story that's found in the canon of the Torah itself. It's a story that's either filling a gap or answering a question that the Torah leaves because the Torah is a pretty sparse, it doesn't use a lot of adjectives. It doesn't use, it's a pretty sparse document. And so the rabbis come, came in, the ancient rabbis, and they asked all of these questions and wanted to fill all of these gaps to help 
further understand the story and relate it to their lives and their their time. And there's this really remarkable contemporary midrash that has come out of Israel, and it's called Dirshuni, which means like explicate me, right? like you know, uh, help me understand. And it's it's written all by women. It's been written by Israeli uh, female scholars of Torah and Bible, and they've come out with these incredible contemporary midrashim, these contemporary rabbinic stories, following the same patterns that the ancient rabbis did. It's really a continuing of this ancient rabbinic conversation. But one that's bringing in more of voices that had been marginalized. We have very few female voices in our ancient rabbinic literature because of the time that they were written in. Um, And so this is kind of adding in some missing voices. And as Rabbi Marcus said, this midrash takes place right at the beginning of uh, the book of Exodus. So the pharaoh, the Egyptian pharaoh has just announced his decree. There's There's a quote here. It says, he, the king of Egypt, said to the midwives, this is a quote from the Torah, from Exodus 1, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives feared God in awe and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So it's this remarkable story. And it's unclear from the text if these midwives are Egyptian women who are the midwives for the Israelites or if they are Israelite women. So it's either they're like connected to the Jewish people or they are... Egyptians who are just doing this remarkable act of courage and bravery, standing up to the king of Egypt and defying his decree. They're not killing the they're not killing the Israelite boy, baby boys as they're born. They're letting them live. I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt for one second. The tradition, the rabbinic tradition, does say that Shifra and Pua are actually code names for Yocheved and Miriam, which are Miri, uh, Moses's mother and sister, uh, and sort of the rabbis claim them as Jews which is very interesting. And that's wonderful that they wanted them to be Jews and kind of saw them there. But one of the wonderful things about Torah is we can also see it in the other angle of just like, these don't really seem like Jewish names so much. And honestly, probably if you put on a critical lens, these were not Jews. These were just Egyptian midwives who understood the power of what they were doing. And so I want us to be able to hold both of those interpretations because that's so much of what we're about here. Yeah, and Dr. Paris, I'm so excited to kind of delve into this midrash and hear what you say. I've when The first time I read this, I immediately wanted to study it with you <laughs> in particular. So I'm very excited we have this opportunity. So I'll just read it out loud. The midwives were asked, where did you get your fe- fearful awe of God, right? Because remember the text says the midwives feared God and that's why they defied the king of Egypt. And they answered, from the great and deep things that we saw at the birth stool, from the mystery that embraces us morning and evening, human being after human being coming into the world, where does he come from and what does she bring with her? The goodness that her mother sees in him, the compassion and the love that she awakens, crying babies bursting forth from exhausted bodies, and the soft seal of God's finger imprinted on their faces. I'll just pause there. I mean, what a, what a description of being a midwife or being a person who is helping to bring a, a human being into the world. Dr. Peretz, I'm curious your reactions to that description. I, I love the description. I really do. I also think it reminds me kind of of the Hippocratic Oath for us. It, it brings that up to me that 
the oath is something that we do and maybe to some feels like a technicality, but it's something that's very ingrained in who you are as a caretaker, as I'm sure you guys feel it when you're caring or you're teaching that um, you have some kind of relationship for the people that you're caring for and you have a job and you have a function and anything that's trying to get in the way of that, it doesn't matter who it is. You're still going to, to complete what you're there for, which they're there to bring in life. And it's so much bigger and it's such a higher power than any king can make it. That's so powerful. The Midrash continues and it says, the midwives were challenged, but didn't it happen at Sinai that all the people saw the thunder and the lightning and the voice of the shofar and the smoking mountain and the people saw it and trembled and stood far off. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, to keep the fearful awe of God before you so that you will not transgress. So they're saying, we have this other quote from later on in Exodus from the revelation at Mount Sinai, right? This great, powerful, supernatural moment. And they challenge the midwives and they say, the fearful awe of God comes from the place of thunder and lightning. What are you talking about? You got the fear of God from this like almost mundane in the fact that it happens all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like how many births happen in hospitals around the country all the time and at homes and around the world, right? Like it happens all the time. This is how every single one of us came into the world Mm -hmm. through some form of birth. So what do you mean that caused the fear of God? And the midwives answered, there is fearful awe that comes from external seeing and there is fearful awe that comes from internal vision. A person can be frozen in, t- in terror, witnessing a supernatural miracle, which awakens and strengthens her sense of fearful awe. But for us, it doesn't work like that. Our fe- fearful awe is not in the heavens. Our fearful awe of God arises precisely from within nature, from within the pain of what we witness on the birth stool. From there, we learn to choose what is good to protect life, to fight against death, and to resist evil. And part of that reminds me a little bit of what you had said initially about your relationship between Judaism and and the work you do, that it's precisely because of how much you know about science and how little you know, and we all know about Mm -hmm. how this miracle happens. Like that's precisely where this faith comes from. I'm curious your your thoughts. Exactly. And I always think in this in in my field, even the most experienced physician will get surprised. Mm-hmm. There's no predicting anything. We sometimes joke with the nurses, like this job is never boring. There's always something to surprise you. There's always a moment where you say to a patient, you know, I really wasn't expecting that one. I've never seen this before. And sometimes they're great surprises. Sometimes, and I think in the in the world of social media, some things get exploited in our fields a bit, where people say, everyone said this to me, 
And yet, look what happened here. But for those moments, we're really surprised too. And we're really happy if there's a good outcome. And then sometimes we're really surprised in a bad way. Everything's going perfect and there's something unexpected happens. So I do think that as OBGYNs, as an OBGYN, you're always on your toes a little bit. There's never a moment that you're 100% comfortable or that you know that something is going to go perfectly well and perfectly normal. And it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's in danger. But And this might be veering off a little, but some uh, one thing that I've noticed is that someone's birth plan can be someone else's birth trauma. Mm-hmm. So I have a close friend who her goal, she had talked about having a home birth, but had a birth in a hospital, but she labored 99% at home and delivered as she was walking into the hospital, essentially. Maybe I shouldn't say that to you right now. <laughs> and she was so happy about it because it's exactly what she wanted. And she had the baby in the hospital with the doctor just at the right moment. And I have other women who that would be the most terrifying, worst traumatizing experience for them. So same experience, totally different impression from those experiences Mm -hmm. too. I love what you were saying about being surprised because I feel like there's so much humility in what you're saying of like, and that's true of everything you've been saying of like, we know so much, but we also, Mm -hmm. it is this kind of miraculous thing that we're get to be a part of. And so we have to be open to the possibilities of what we don't know. My impression, not to disparage any other type of surgeon, but that my impression is that that's rare for a surgeon to have that kind of humility. <laughs> oh, my dad would love that. <laughs> Marcus's dad is an internist, so he's very, <laughs> has an opinion. Yeah. We definitely are put in our place a little bit by the balance between our surgery and our surgical training and our surgical lives and obstetrics, which can just be so unpredictable and surprise us in many ways. And and truthfully, and I think any surgeon will say this, there's always something to learn from. And just like in Judaism, we always talk about medicine as lifelong learning. There's always something changing there's always need new data about something and there's new technology. So things are changing all the time. And I, I think the other thing I love about this midrash is how much like faith and awe of God is put into relationship with other people that this kind of contrast. And I think it's a lot, Rabbi Marcus and I did a podcast last year about our different theologies. And I think it's reflective of our different theologies in a lot of ways of, I connect very deeply to this idea that my relationship with God is not in the heavens, right? It's not necessarily about these big transformative moments I've had. It's very much about um, my relationship with other people, this idea that from the pain that we witness on the birth stool, that's where we learn to choose to do good and to protect life. 
and to resist evil. And I feel like that's been my experience. I've never had the experience of helping assist in a birth, but my experience of just kind of my relationship with God manifesting through my relationship with other people and being a result of my relationship with other people, seeing people's pain and feeling like that is a reinforcement of my need to live according to my values and to fight to make the world a better place that that resonated with me. Yeah. And I was, I was doing little Torah digging so you guys can always correct me. It's not my specialty, but I was looking back at the story of Adam and Eve. And when Eve ate the forbidden fruit, Hashem basically said to her, your punishment is going to be pain during labor. And maybe there are other interpretations of that. But I read something about it that said this should be a reminder to us that with with pain, there's also ecstasy. And that when we're born, that's our first introduction to that. And then that's the lesson that we get to carry through our lives, that there's going to be happiness and that there's going to be sadness. And oftentimes they're going to come very much together, whether it's physical or emotional. I love that. It reminds me of what one of my friends and colleagues reflected on after the bris of her son. It was a really hard moment for her to inflict pain on your perfect child and to change their body and to, you know, it's a, it's a really hard idea to do a circumcision. And that was very similar to her reflection of my son is going to experience so much pain in his life and I'm going to have to figure out how to like, be with him through all of those moments of pain. So for his first moment of pain to be one that he experiences with love and in community and have that be the model moving forward of all future pain that he'll experience in his life. Like what a test for me as his mother and what an opportunity and like a privilege to be able to experience together. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I mean, I just wanted to also point out about that midrash, something that I loved about it. And in some ways I think maybe this is the women's voice coming, coming into the Torah here that the response, usually the way the Midrash works, is that one rabbi says something, one male rabbi challenges them, and then that same male rabbi then answers them their question as they're talking about something that they've maybe never experienced in their life. This Midrash is different. We immediately get the testimony of an actual midwife, not a rabbi, a midwife. A midwife, by the way, might not even be Jewish, right? And we take that Torah seriously. We take their experience seriously. We ask A rabbi asks a question about it. And what's wonderful is a rabbi doesn't answer. It's not a rabbi who then tells you the answer of what the midwife is supposed to be experiencing, but it is the midwife. It is a non-rabbi actually teaching us Torah, which, by the way, is something you've seen in the Zohar and Kabbalah all the time. You very rarely see it within Midrash and you and, and, and within sometimes within the Tanakh, but but especially in rabbinic Midrash, you don't see it so often. It's something that's always bothered me is the rabbis sort of putting their experience on somebody else. Um, and this is so nice to see it actually coming from the source itself, which is really nice. Yeah. One more reflection on the um, like experience of pain that you were talking about. I mean, I think it was very true in my experience. I only have one experience of birth and it was, I guess I have two, one of, that I don't remember of when I was born and the, and the one of when our oldest daughter was born. And uh, I'll never recite the Psalms that I recited while I was 
in labor the same way again. I, we rec- I recited a lot of Psalms, Marcus and I together recited a lot of Psalms from Hallel because those are the ones that I know <laughs> that I have memorized. And so I was kind of chanting and singing a lot, from the narrow place I called out to God. And to have that experience of experiencing like more pain than I've ever experienced but to have it be connected to such an ecstatic and joyous moment, thank God, has like what a blessing that I got to recite that psalm and to have that relationship with God and have that experience of calling out to God from a dark place in a moment of incredible joy. That that coupling of pain and joy, it's such a blessing because so often it's the it's just the pain, right? It's you know, you can imagine all of the people who have cried out that psalm throughout Jewish history who have lived in tremendous pain and have never gotten to experience the joy that we got to experience at the birth of our first child. I think there is something profound and potentially unique about about that experience. Beautiful. Really beautiful. Oh, yeah. Just really, really beautiful. And I, I just remember those moments so potently. And I remember the, that melody so potently. I, I, I before, we, before we kind of move on to our next topic here, I do want to just bring in Israel just for just for a moment, just because what's going on right now, and ah, just thinking about how I felt the vision of the the IDF soldiers when when they did raid Al Shifa Hospital to get rid of Hamas. Them also not just bringing guns, but bringing you'll tell me the exact terminology of what it is, but the the units for the, the incubators, the, the incubators <laughs> and them like risking their lives to bring in these big wheeling. I, I mean, I saw them infantrymen wheeling in these incubators for the, the Palestinian babies who were born. And it was just this incredible, it was this incredible moment of what Israel is all about. And as these, you know, as they're, as they're literally getting shot at, they're bringing incubators in to protect newborn Palestinian lives. And it's just it was just extremely incredible. That is something that I really, truly love about Israel. And again, just I uh, really feel the need to just bring Israel into everything we do right now um, because of, of of what we're going through here. So, And it, it sort of puts the soldiers back into that role of Shifra and Pua. I love that. Regardless, you're, it's about protecting the life of a child. Right, right, right. And yeah, oh, man. Okay. Putting my head back on here. <laughs> I want to kind of bring into this conversation. So we've talked a lot about the experience of birth and, and I, I feel so blessed to have been able to experience it. Um, but it's also not, as you referenced, not one that everyone who wants to experience it can. And that's also such a part of our tradition, like so much of our early Torah stories. And then later on Torah stories, like so many of the women in our tradition suffered from infertility. And that's like so core to the narrative of the women of our foremothers and of our tradition. And I'm like curious your thoughts on like, why do you think that that narrative of women struggling with infertility was the one that formed our religion and formed our tradition? Yeah, I was, I was looking at the same thing. It's like all of our matriarchs at some point in the Torah are listed as barren. And I remember when I was learning that when I was younger, that word didn't really have much meaning to me. And obviously now it it holds such a different meaning. And Sarah laughed when she was going to get pregnant. 
even I think with Yitzhak and Rivka, they, they, it took time for them to get pregnant too. And I, I, I think it even says she was barren at some point and that he prayed for her and then she got pregnant. That the whole story of Rachel and Leah is this entire back and forth besides the love triangle that exists. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And the battle over a husband. There's also very much this sorrow. And one thing that I also noticed was even the children, even Leah's children, still all of their names still were just responding to her pregnancy. So Roven came from Re'eh, from from hate from her husband. And Shimon also was that now God is hearing me from Shema. And then it goes into Levi that they're joined and Yehuda that she's finally thanking them. And then and then you pull in their maidservants who are now producing more kids for them because Leah's now facing this secondary infertility. And finally, Rachel has a baby, and she is she names him basically saying, and, and now I want one more. Now I want more. <laughs> and then after Benjamin is born, then she dies in childbirth. So it's pretty incredible that all of the matriarchs, and then there are, of course, other stories. Like I feel like the common infertility story we talk about is, Hannah, but it's, I think that there's two parts, I think in Judaism and, and you had, you guys had provided a little bit of text about what's the role of the husband. And it's a little hard for, I'm sure for all of us to read some stories like, oh, well, if the husband prayed, everything will be good. Or if someone committed some bad act then you're having trouble getting pregnant. And I guess with everything in Torah, you can choose to take it literally or kind of turn it around on yourself and think these are the things that go through your mind if you're trying to get pregnant. And maybe there there could be some things you've done wrong in the past. And also maybe there are other things to bring goodness into your life, but that heartbreak in general is a very real part of our lives and that loss or infertility is a real thing that exists and it's talked about biblically and it's so hushed in our society too. Absolutely. I mean, there's something almost like radical about the fact that this is the formation story of of our people that exactly as you said something that we don't talk I think we're doing better but we don't talk about enough and I think so many people don't feel comfortable kind of bringing their full selves when they're struggling with infertility into our communities and into our Jewish spaces and it feels like they're not seen whereas the, those are the foundational stories of our people I wonder if there's something I always read everything in the Torah, both as the story, but then as kind of a metaphor. And I think the the rabbis do as well. Like what, what do you think is so potent, so powerful about this metaphor of 
like longing for a child, that that's kind of the ultimate metaphor and, and analogy of longing that the Torah chooses to return to again and again, as you said with Hannah, like that's our, our model for prayer in Jewish life is her prayer for a child. I have to wonder like what is so powerful about that draw? Like, I think there is something there about, I don't want to say unique. I haven't experienced everything in the world, but there's something about that longing, um, that comes with infertility, that pain, that loneliness, that sorrow. I mean, especially with what you were saying about Rachel, how unseen she feels, even though she has the love of her husband and she is supposed to be beautiful. And she has, I mean, she has like all of these riches in her life. Um, there's, there's this emptiness, this loneliness and this longing that she feels that the Torah lifts up, the Torah lifts up almost no experiences of women <laughs> like this. It's unique in the, in how it lifts up the experiences of these women. That makes me think there must be a bigger metaphor or lesson or human experience that is kind of represented by this infertility and this longing. And I look out at our communities and I think we, we do such a poor job, as you said, like we, it's talked about in the Torah, but not, it's not talked about in our communities today. Like, I wonder how in our communities today we can lift up, um, that experience and be places where people can bring that, like that utter longing and potential sorrow and loneliness and heartbreak and all of the things that the Torah tells us these women were feeling. We know that women in our communities today are experiencing them as we speak and they're showing up to shul and they're not seeing, they're just seeing how we celebrate all of the babies and celebrate all of the mothers and celebrate. They just see how we celebrate everyone except them and are not seeing them in their experience. And so I look at our like holy text and I say like, wow, there's so much for us to teach us about lifting up that story. And sure, there's the problematic parts too of like, why is it the husband that has to pray? And what is the, you know, all of those things, right? It was written in a time, I believe was written in a time and place. But I just think that there's something, a lesson there for us as rabbis, certainly. And I think for us as Jewish communities of like, how do we make space for people to bring their full selves into our communities in the way that the Torah has brought space for these women to bring their experiences into the text? I'm sorry. I just got to give Hannah some credit for a second. It was Hannah's prayer that brought Shimshon, right? It wasn't, it wasn't her husband. Her husband did a terrible job, actually. It was Hannah. And, and literally Hannah's prayer is like made fun of by a man. Okay, who supposedly knows a lot about prayer, right? The guy who's guarding the temple and the rabbis in there, like I gave this. I'm sorry, I give the sermon every every Rosh Hashanah, but the rabbis in I think their 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 rebelliousness and they're just defending those who are marginalized often make the way Hannah prays for a child the way we pray the Amidah as Jews. Everybody, man, woman, anybody, right? So I just I, I wanna I wanna lift Hannah up here. For a second. No, a I think that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak from uh, you know my own personal experience. I don't, I haven't shared this with a lot of people in the community, but thank God I'm, I'm expecting, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, and I'm about six months along. But this past April, I, I was also pregnant and suffered a miscarriage, and I was miscarrying over Passover, and so I was showing up every day to lead services in our chapel and standing there as I was bleeding, as I was miscarrying. And I don't think I realized how long a miscarriage can take. Like it was 
days and days of bleeding. And so I would show up every day for services and I would, I would bleed while I was, while I was praying. Um, and then it finally kind of happened in the, in a big way while I was leading a, a children a program for our school with our children while I was leading a, a, a day of uh, tzedakah and a, a day of social justice for our kids. And that experience of kind of like walking around and being in community while I was having this really lonely and painful and personal experience really opened my eyes to bring us back to the the midwives of like, wow, you do not know what's going on with people. Like you do not know the pain that people are experiencing. You do not know the the loneliness, the and yeah, I think I don't I don't necessarily think the community could have done anything like different in that moment to support me. I'm a very internal processor and it's not something I was ready to kind of bring out into the into the world as it was happening. But it does make me question like how powerful that the that our texts are able to hold these experiences. And whereas I may not have been able to share the experience as it was happening with my community, I certainly was able to share it with God because I knew God understood because the Torah tells me that God does. The Torah tells me that God is there with these women in this moment. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit more about your question and why is this such a big thing in women's lives. And I think even from a young age, you form an idea of what your life might look like in the future. And you create space for those things to happen. And everyone's journey is different and there are obstacles in the way. But certainly when it comes to loss or when it comes to infertility, you've created space for a family, you create a space for a child. Sometimes the family isn't the structure that you envisioned when you were younger. You have space in your heart. You have space in your life. You may have space in your home for this. And I think also in the, in the Torah, these women were also going through this for for what is maybe in the Torah is a little bit of what is a wife supposed to be, but for some of us, it's just what where do I see my life? What what do I see as fulfilling? And having a child is certainly not what every woman wants. And it's not always something that fits into their life. And it's not always something that they want to fit in their life. But when a woman wants that in their life and the stars are not aligned for that, it feels like you're just riding on this train and it's getting derailed over and over and over again. Oh, so painful. That's really, I do, I do, I do want to push us a little bit on this on, on, on what you talked about. And I'm a little nervous to get into this territory, but I, I never want to hide any, I don't want to hide Judaism from you. Like I, I from, and I'm, I'm speaking to all of you. Like I, I might disagree with what Jesus says. I don't agree with everything, even though I'm a rabbi, I might disagree with that particular thing. I might need to reinterpret it, but I think we have to confront it. And, and that's in some ways what conservative Judaism is all about. Right. The first, the first commandment in the Torah is to have a child, right? The first commandment in the Torah is to reproduce. 
the commandment is usually thought of for the rabbi specifically as a commandment for men, not for women. Specifically, why? Because the rabbis felt it was unfair to interpret the Torah as commanding women to do something that, at least for them, might have, might be a, a biological impossibility, and that would just be too painful to put that on a woman. There were rabbis, by the way, a minority opinion in the Talmud is that rabbi women are also obligated, by the way, but that was that was kind of shot down in the, in the, in the Gemara eventually. Um, and I think that position makes much more sense. So much think, so that well, I think there's yeah. also I think it's also the idea that the Torah wouldn't command someone to do something that would put their life in danger. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah, I think actually Rabbi Rachel's right with that. Yeah. yeah. So that because childbirth, even today, but certainly then, was such a life-threatening experience for the woman that the Torah wouldn't command them to go through that. But then it becomes kind of a I don't know, a catch-22. How do you command a man without commanding a woman to? Right. And by the way, this was so forceful that in, in Mishnah Yevamot, in the Mishnah, a very important rabbinic document, legal document, says that if after 10 years in your partnership, in your marriage, that that there is no, either the women can't get pregnant, by the way, for a man or for a woman, biologic, obviously they didn't have a, that advanced understanding of biology 2,000 years ago, the couple needs to get divorced. And and each partner needs to find another partner to make sure that they can fulfill this mitzvah. This is just something I think we have to confront. Now there is a a midrash in Pesikta de Rav Kahana that I put on our on our little sheets, and we just don't have the time to read it all out for you. There's this incredible midrash uh, where I love the way the rabbis do this. They understand sort of the halacha. They understand that men are obligated to have to reproduce and that they technically have to divorce their wives in order to do that if they can't do that with their partner. But the Midrash in Pesikta de Rav Khan, it tells this unbelievable story of, of, of a woman who just absolutely refuses to become divorced. A couple where this was happening, and the man, then the rabbi sort of tell the man, he, he's got to get divorced, you have to fulfill this commandment. And this couple just like, loves each other so much and refuses to do this and says, I can't possibly let the most precious thing in my life go, which is my partner who I love. That, can but ha- I, can I just summarize the Midrash a little bit? It's so beautiful how they say it. Can I just summarize yeah. it for a minute? Yeah, sure. So the, 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 they tell the man he has to divorce his wife. And so he says to her, take anything from my home, take whatever is most precious to you and bring it to your father's house, right? He's clearly in so much pain. He's not trying, he's trying to fulfill what the rabbis told him to do to divorce his wife, but he's trying to say, take, take some consolation, take, take the most precious thing into your father's home. And so she gives him food and drink, prepares a whole feast for him and he passes out or falls asleep. And she has the maidservants bring him to her father's home. And when he wakes up, he says, what am I doing here? And she said, well, you told me to take the most precious thing in your house to your, to my father's home. What's more precious to me than you. Um, and it's this beautiful moment of like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to lose you. Right. And the rabbis like solve it. They solve it legally and they say, well, what ended up happening is a great rabbi prayed then for that woman to become pregnant and she became pregnant because of, of her love for her husband. Okay. I don't love the solution so much. I think in rabbi language, this is basically saying, yeah, we have this law and we have to stick by it, but we know the reality is much more complicated. And this is sort of the way the rabbis were able to save face with this midrash. And I obviously love it 
as a rabbi and as a Jew to see the rabbi struggling with the tension between the reality, the emotional reality in the world and the law they have to stand behind and trying to square the round peg, right? And I love the gap between this midrash and this and this mishnah really shows that this this conflict and this contrast we, that we have we have this mitzvah to have children and and it's an important mitzvah right i'm not going to quote you the statistics of of how much jews need to have children to sustain the amount of numbers that we actually literally have i mean we're we're, we're not growing as we're not having as many children as we used to and we're not sustaining our numbers um and, and and the rabbis were so aware of that. Actually, Hillel um, obligates a man to have a, a a boy and a girl. And Shammah, why? In order to, that the, that the the man and woman at least can replace themselves in the world. While Shammah actually says you have to have two boys and two girls. Why? Because you don't just have to replace yourself. You also have to add one more. Right. This perspective is in our tradition. Yet we have the voice of the midrash, and we have the voice that 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 romance. And of course, we have exactly what you said, Doctor Peretz. Um, that it just doesn't fit into some women's lives um, and their vision of their lives. So how do we square this round peg? Like, how do we talk about this? Like, we can't give, we're not going to give sermons in the middle of that you must have babies, right? We're not going to do that. So how, how do we handle this in modern Judaism today? How do we talk about this? Do we not talk about it? Do we just pretend that it sort of doesn't exist? How do we square this round peg here in this modern world we live in? I mean, I think in some ways, the way the Midrash does it is like the way forward is to be able to say, we have a value. We're like, right, we have a value of of having children and there's the lived reality of people's lives. And I think it's I think it's it's hard, but I think it's okay. I think it's okay to say, like, we hold a value as a community and we understand that that's not going to work for every situation and we still love the other the people in front of us who choose not to like live their lives according to that value and they're still part of our community and valued and their lives have meaning and value and love and and right like we're not trying to we would never want to negate someone's like valid life choices that they're making for their lives and people have a variety of reasons for not wanting kids I mean, I think in some ways the way the Midrash does it is the way forward, right? The Midrash says we have this value in their language. It's we have this Jewish law, but I think all Jewish laws are manifestations of values. So we have this value of having children and we have the lived reality of someone's life. And like we have to be able to hold both of those things at the same time. Like I don't think the answer is to let go of our value, right? I don't think the answer is to pretend, as you said, like pretend that Judaism is neutral about having children. I don't think it is. Like I think there is a value in Judaism of having children. Like it's throughout our texts, it's throughout our tradition, it's throughout our culture. And that's not going to work for everyone. Like as Dr. Parrott said, like there are women who, and men and people who choose not to make that part of their lives, to have full, fulfilled, loving, happy, connected lives without children in them. And I think we as religious leaders and as Jewish communities have to do a better job of being able to hold both of those as true, that we have this value and we have members of our community who are valued, loved, incredible, beautiful, amazing people in our community who aren't choosing to live their lives 
with that value in them. And I think that's, I think we have to be able to hold, it's, it's difficult, and, but I think we have to be able to hold both. And we have to do a better job of holding both because I think we are causing a lot of pain. Like we, we have to be able to hold the value that we, that Judaism uh, values having children without causing as much pain as we have been causing to those in our community who have chosen not to. Mm-hmm. Which the other, the other part of it is, what role does that person play in the community to raise these children, mm-hmm. to bring, to build the community itself, to bring up the children? Because we always say it takes a village for any, for raising a child. Maybe not, again, taking the words of Torah as some interpretation, not always literal, but growing the community intellectually is just as important as growing a community physically and continuing not necessarily the one, I don't know if this is too, not the best example, planting a seed (laughs) and uh, the people who water that seed to help it grow into a plant. Beautiful. Beautiful. I I just want to, my experience, I mean, you know, as as a man, um, I'm seeing this. I don't say I don't want to say I was reticent to have children, but we don't talk enough about the fact that it's like really hard to have children, and and like not I, of course the birthing experience is something I can't touch, right? But even like afterwards and like sleepless nights, the having no free time, like not being able to do what I love to do, and and that's really challenging and really hard, and it's really painful. I, I can't tell you how many nights I've cried, and you've seen me crying. Rabbi Rachel, that I I don't feel like I can study enough Torah because I'm too busy, you know, throwing a, a ball around with my daughter. Yet, day after day, I throw the ball around with my daughter. Yet, there was not a hesitation that I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a child, and I'm gonna love this child, and I'm gonna everything gets sacrificed for that child. Why? It's because it's a mitzvah. It's because it's a mitzvah, and for me, that's why it's. It, 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 it's so important for us to still preserve the voice of the commanded nature to have children. God forbid to punish people who make not God forbid that we don't use it to punish people who don't do that. We don't do that with anything. Have I ever yelled at anyone for eating bacon? Never happened. Okay. Never happened. Okay. I won't do it with this either. That being said, I do think we need to hear the message that having children is not for you, right? It's not because it's going to make my life great. And I think too often we hear from people like, oh, the reason you should have children, because you might be unhappy in the end, but in the end, you'll be happy. In the end, you'll, it'll be wonderful. It'll be flowery. It'll be amazing. It'll be the best decision you ever made. And hopefully it is. I think it is in my life, by the way, 100% now. But that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Sometimes we're commanded to do things that we don't necessarily want to do as our first choice, but it's a responsibility, right? It's, it's, it's what God calls upon us at that moment. Now, God forbid, if Every inch of your body is saying, I can't do this. This is not for me. It's not going to fit into my lifestyle. I would say you should listen to that. But let's say there are competing voices in your head, right? Maybe maybe the mitzvah part of this helps to lift that voice up a little bit. Like maybe we should feel a little bit of like, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for the Jewish people. I'm doing this for God. This is actually my playing keepy uppy with my kid for an hour instead of studying Gemara last night, okay, was my service of God. 
right? And and not because in the end I'm going to be more happy that I played keepy uppy with my kid. Might be true, might not be true. I don't know, right? And I think for me, at least at this moment in my life, that commandment is essential in my life right now. I know I'm going to be studying so much less Torah. I know I'm going to be watching so much less soccer games and watching less racing, which I love, right? And doing anything, going at getting drinks with my friend because we're going to have the second kid. I know. And everyone tells me so. And, I'm, and you know what? I'm dreading it. I'm dreading it. I am absolutely dreading it. And that is real and that is valid, right? But for me, this moment of commandedness pushes me over that. And I just want to, I want to, I want to, preserve that voice, even though the commandment definitely does damage to other people as well. And I want to figure out ways we can mitigate the damage that does, but preserve the good and preserve the benefit it does for our people. And I think for, for human life. I think that's a really important perspective. Well, this conversation was incredible. I I think this is probably one of our, our best conversations, not that the other ones were were wonderful, (laughs) but, but really, truly, I think hearing from you, Dr. Peretz and your experiences really standing between life and death and, and really just seeing that mystery up front is just, is just incredible to hear from. It's incredible to hear from you, Rabbi Rachel, and your experiences with birth and, and uh, miscarriage, your painful stories that you shared and your beautiful stories you shared. I just, it was wonderful to be part of this conversation and just, it was absolutely incredible having, having you here, Dr. Parrots. Just really appreciate it. Any concluding thoughts you want to leave with our listeners today? I think that, Overall, birth, even in the time of the Torah, was just not that simple. That pregnancy, that birth, that loss was something that was so very real then, is so real now, um, and that there's also something to be said about the community who's with you at the time of birth but what we have to remember is when we look back at this story with the midwives, that those people are going to be there with you at the time of loss too. And whether or not you want to reach out to them, um, whether you want to reach out to people in the community or you just want to keep to yourself, just knowing that people are there if you need them that you always have that lifeline, so to speak, available to you. Hopefully, it, and that Judaism values that lifeline too. Hopefully provides a little bit of comfort for women who are going through this. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just I just hope and pray that for people in our community that um, as a rabbi, I can be one of those people that people can reach out to. And I'm, um, if you're listening to this and, um, feel like your experience was, um, shown or was, um, was not seen in our conversation today. Like, I hope that you know that I'm here for you and want to be one of those people that, um, that you can reach out to, to, um, cry with, to talk with, to process with, um, that, that we're here for you. Beautiful. I also do want to say, Dr. Peretz, what practice are you a part of? So I'm 
currently at Maple Grove Hospital, and I'm transitioning to Oakdale OBGYN in January. Wonderful. So we'll, we'll put that in our show notes. If you are looking for an amazing OBGYN, <laughs> um, please um, contact those places. Contact Dr. Rachel Parrots. I'm sure you can Google her for what's one of our most incredible OBGYNs in the Twin Cities area. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate the conversation. We know your time is so important. So. And just to echo off of what Rabbi Rachel said, if there were any technical things that anyone would have, anyone who's listening has questions about, I'm happy to be contacted with those. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for this candid conversation. We really appreciate it, everybody. I do want to, of course, thank our usual people we thank who are so incredible. Of course, our amazing editor and producer, Jesse Ulrich from Rant9 Productions. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your incredible production and editing of this podcast. If you are, if you have your own podcast or you're creating a podcast and you want someone to do that, he's uh, there for you. Look up Rant9 Productions. Also, of course, our theme music, uh, amazing theme music uh, by Colleen Deeker and Jeffrey Baldinger. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that as well. Please, please always remember to review, to subscribe, to comment all those wonderful things on our podcast so more listeners can find our Torah, can find these amazing conversations that are happening, vital conversations um, to our lives, um, that they can find them as well. It really, really does help. I hope um, I hope the next time we have a conversation, things are better in Israel. Um, I really do, praying for um, Israel all the time. Um, and just really looking forward uh, to continuing these conversations. Thank you, Dr. Paris. Thank you. And I actually just wanted to kind of add how when I was looking into a lot of this, I came across the song from that Colleen Deeker did with uh, Josh Warshawski, um, and who lights up the world and all who dwell upon it with mercy and his goodness and renews the work of creation every day, forever that we say every day in Shacharit. So I thought that was a nice thing to end on. And the song is absolutely beautiful yeah. as you might imagine their song would be. Yeah, Look up Rabbi Josh Rosowski uh, or Colleen Deeker in Spotify. You'll find some of their amazing or, or iTunes music or whatever, what you use it's incredible. I love that song so much. Thank you. Celebrate the words of Torah with Marcus. And-